The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We're here this morning to study in the word of God in the life of David. Uh, we are looking at uh, the whole incident where we had the coup, Absalom's coup, and then that's all been put down. And then this morning we'll take a look at David being restored as king. That is what we're going to be studying this morning. Before we do any of that, uh, let's make sure that our heart is ready for the study of the Word of God. We'll take a moment for silent prayer. We can confess sins if needed, uh, but also we can humble ourselves. Humility is absolutely critical. Unless we are humble, we are unteachable. So let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure our heart is indeed prepared, that we're ready to learn the things of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for blessing us with this time this morning to gather together here at the church. We thank you for those who are at home listening to this either live or listening to one of the recordings that's been posted on the website. Father, this technology is available to us today and it's a tremendous blessing in this time of uncertainty with the virus that's being spread to have the luxury of being able to do this in a semi-virtual way where those who feel like they should, can stay home and listen to a live audio stream. What an amazing blessing to live in such times. We ask, Father, that you would help all of us, whether we're here at the church or whether we're at home listening online, that we would all of us be able to set aside whatever it is that's going on in our lives right now in terms of details of life, set all that aside, and focus our attention in on what it is that you're trying to teach us this morning that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of this. In his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. All right, we're going to start out with uh, another little deal here this morning. Uh, This was part of our reading this week in the Bible reading that we're doing. And uh, this is in Isaiah 28, 13. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there goes on from there that they may go and stumble backward and be broken and snared and taken captive. That's a message uh, to Israel. But nonetheless, there is a message here also, the word of the Lord, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. This is the way it works in terms of the way we grow up in our faith. It's here a little, there a little. Uh, I know all of us treasure Uh, those moments when we have, uh, for lack of a better way to say it, those aha moments, right? Which we all do. We have those aha moments. I mean, for me personally, I had been exposed to biblical things for years and years. And then when I was 17 years old, I got exposed to the true gospel message. Salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And it was an astounding thing to me to come to understand the true message that I was helpless, hopeless and helpless in terms of being able to do anything to save myself. But God had done everything to make it possible. And all I needed to do was believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. And then God would do everything. God would do it all. That was astounding to me. And it changed everything for me because that's when I truly got saved. It was when I was 17 years old. Placed my faith in Jesus Christ. I had those same kind of moments when I, uh, for example, when I was learning from the Word of God that in all of the judgments that are presented, it doesn't matter if it's the Bema Seat judgment for us, the judgment seat of Christ, or if it's the great white throne judgment for unbelievers, or whether it's the judgment of the sheep and goats and the wilderness judgment for Israel and all of that, sins are never brought up. Our deeds are what are brought up at the judgments. Every one of those judgments, it's deeds. Why is that? Because Jesus already died for our sins. They've already been judged. And when that was one of those aha moments for me. I was like, oh, wow, that makes perfect sense. Jesus already died. And so there's all kinds of those moments. I've had the moments, you've had those moments where all of a sudden something just hits. It's like, wow, it's there. But the way God actually teaches us is here a little, there a little. And 
I don't know if any of you are even following along and doing the Bible reading that we have the plan on the website, if any of you are actually following along and doing it. But I'm going to be totally honest with you. A lot of times we read through some of these chapters and I feel like, man, I just I'm not really relating to this that much. This is pronouncing uh, judgment upon Israel. This is talking about uh, the misdeeds of Ephraim. This is talking about, you know, all the, all these kinds of different things. And I'm reading it and I'm and I'm taking it in. But I'm thinking, man, I'm I just really don't know if I'm relating to this tonight when I'm reading this sort of thing. Well, the reality of it is, if you're taking in the word of God, it is going to it's not going to return void. It's not going to. And so a lot of times it's just a little here, a little there. You don't even really notice how you're learning these things. And there's messages there. Remember, all scripture is God breathed and profitable. It's not as though it's limited to one part of the Bible or another. We can learn from any part of the scripture. And so as we study God's word, we're going to learn from it no matter what. So my my encouragement to you would be, well, go ahead and keep reading. Go ahead and keep reading. Go ahead and keep reading these things and taking it in. And don't worry about whether or not you have an aha moment. See, I've talked to you guys before. I think there's too many pastors that are caught up in this idea that somehow they're going to dig through and mine the scriptures and come up with some little nugget that's this precious little nugget that nobody ever found before, right? They found this thing in the scriptures and it's some little piece that nobody ever noticed and how brilliant they are to figure out this. No, I'm telling you right now, if I, all I ever do is dig through the scriptures and I come up with the truths that have been known for centuries and I can figure out how to communicate those truths to you, then I've done more than I ever deserve to be able to do. God has blessed me in doing that. I don't have to find some nugget in there that nobody's ever found before. I want to, find, I want to dig through the scriptures and find truth and teach it to you. I want you to walk away with that truth in your hearts and so you can live according to it. But I'm not trying to impress anybody with how amazing I am at finding some little thing. Who cares about that? If that's truth and I can uncover truth, then that's important. But somehow showing that I'm such a brilliant uh, student of the word, I, I don't, I'm not trying to impress you with me. I'm trying to impress you with God from his word. But pastors want that. But the reality of it is the way it works is you study and you teach and you study and you teach and you study and you teach and you keep studying and teaching and you keep communicating the same truths over and over again. And here a little, there a little, all of us eventually get it. And it's like anything else. It's like anything else in life. You know, you may hear it 15 times and then it's the 15th time that all of a sudden, boom, uh, you get it. It clicks and you actually get it. So the process of growing, what I'm trying to say is the process of growing is a very slow, steady process. Now, all of us have had growth spurts and talking about in terms of physical growth. Um, I myself personally, when I was in the 15 to 16 year old age range, I just grew like a weed, man. I just went crazy uh, physically, I'm talking about growing so fast. In fact, it was, I was growing so fast that my body ached because my, literally my skeleton, my frame was, was, was not able to take the growth that was happening. It was so painful for me when I was that age, but spiritually we can do the same thing. Spiritually, we can be going along and we're just, we're, we're growing a little, we're growing a little, we're growing a little. And then all of a sudden we can have some kind of a growth spurt, whatever it is that God does, he can cause us to have a, a growth spurt spiritually. But that, but the general rule for how it works is right here. Order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. It's, this is how we learn. This is how we grow. And so uh, for all of us, we need to be aware of that and we need to be comfortable with that because we don't want to get, well, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this, we don't want to get to a place where we become discouraged in our own walk because somehow we're not having these massive advances in spiritual growth. Now, that's not how it works. It's steady. It's slow. It's a little here, it's a little there. And that's the way that God works in our hearts. That's the way he works in our lives. And so, and when we're comfortable with that, what you can do, what's amazing is if you really do it, if you stop and you think about it, you go, let me think back, you know, where was I five years ago in my own spiritual walk? And you realize, man, I've learned a lot in the last five years, but it's this little here, little there. And over the course of time, it ends up being a lot. Does that make sense? And so I don't want any, any of you to somehow get discouraged. Like a lot of people, for example, they'll come to a church like this and, and they just, 
they're just astounded at all the different things they suddenly are learning about that they've never even heard before. And they have this amazing a period where they start to learn all these different things that are actually in God's word. They just never heard them preach before. And then after a while, where you've been in that situation, after a while, you kind of reach the point where it's more of that steady curve, that steady growth. And you can become discouraged in that. You can think, well, man, when I first came to the church, I was, I was being blown away. And now it's stuff I've heard before. Well, that's how God works. That's how he teaches us. That's how we grow. Yes, sir. Well, just a couple of things uh, that I've noted over the years, and that is a lot of times uh, just knowing the different uh, meanings of, the, of the, the Greek or even the Hebrew. Because you don't really read one Bible. It might say different in the pulpit or it might say different this and that, but then you read one Bible. And that, that really makes the difference, especially when you read something, you kind of get it, but it doesn't well see there's another one right for so first of all he talked about two different things one of them was a lot of times when we you know as a as a verse by verse kind of teaching church you know we're doing with david we're doing more of a chapter by chapter uh when it comes to romans we're going verse by verse when you go verse by verse and you look at the original languages and you you, you go through there and you look at it and you understand what the what was meant in the original greek because all of us read our English Bibles, and the English Bibles are very good. Don't get me wrong. They're very good. But there's little subtle things that you pick up on from the original language that you won't get otherwise. And that's huge because that helps you have a clearer understanding of what God is trying to communicate to us. And then the other part he was talking about is a lot of times we have these things that we, we learn from the Word, and then they don't become as crystal clear to us until we go through something in life and that particular thing that we learned is spot on with regard to whatever it is we're facing suddenly a concept something that in our minds was simply a concept that we had from the word of god now it's real right because we lived it and that's why i pointed that out before that very much for me the whole concept of all we really need is god that concept was always there in my mind and really I could I mean I could not have understood it as clearly if it hadn't been for the fire in 2011 having gone through what we went through in 2011 through that experience God taught me the essence of if if that's all we really have is our relationship with him we really have everything you know and so that's how it works too right we have these little things that we learn along the way and then God will use a circumstance or a condition that we find ourselves in to bring that to the forefront and make it even more vivid and more real in our thinking. Does that make sense? But it's a process. It is not, it's not an exponential thing. It's steady. And that's what's being communicated in this passage in Isaiah. It's a steady thing. It's a little here. It's a little there. And before you know it, when you look back on it, you go, wow, it is amazing to see how God has been at work in me and all the things that I've learned over the years uh, as a result of studying his word, right? Does that make sense? So don't get discouraged. Don't feel like, I mean, don't feel like, wow, I mean, I'm just not seeing that explosive kind of growth that I had at one point. Well, you know what? There are going to be times that are going to be that way. And there's going to be other times where it's really more of a steady process. And that's, but that's the main process that God uses is that steady process to grow us up in the faith. So we have to be able to be comfortable with that and to trust in that. When I read that, I thought, man, I need to teach about that because that's really important. We don't want to get uh, discouraged in our growth. This is uh, what we're going to study in Life of David. David restored as king. It comes out of 2 Samuel chapter 19. First thing we see in this chapter before the restoration happens is we see how David's lament, that's what we just ended up with in chapter 18. Remember when I mentioned uh, that uh, last week I mentioned that uh, the very last verse of chapter 18 is actually the first verse in the Hebrew text. And that was David's lament over Absalom. Uh, Joab saw how the people were affected by that. Uh, first of all, uh, here in 2 Samuel 19, 1 through 8a, we'll go ahead and read that. Uh, Then it was told Joab, let me, let me rewind to that final verse. Uh, the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. 
And thus he said as he walked, O my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. And we had a little study on substitutionary atonement with regard to that picture painted there, that shadow doctrine there. Uh, here in chapter 19, then it, then, I was told, then it was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourns for Absalom. The victory that day was turned to mourning for all the people. Notice what it says there. So the, the people were affected by his mourning. The victory that day was turned to mourning for all the people, for the people heard it and said that day, the king is grieved for his son. So the people went by stealth into the city that day as people who are humiliated steal away when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, Today you have covered with shame the faces of all your servants who today have saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives, the lives of your concubines by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. For you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? Uh, now, therefore, arise and go out and speak, speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, surely not a man will pass the night with you. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. So the king arose and sat in the gate. Let me back up a little bit. The king arose and sat in the gate when they told all the people saying, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. Then all the people came before the king. So that's what we're looking at. So first of all, as we saw, his grieving for Absalom caused the people to mourn with him. He, his grieving affect all, affected all the people. I've said it before. Uh, it is an interesting thing that can happen with regard to leadership. Uh, a lot of people uh, who I've talked to about the role, for example, in our own country that the president of the United States plays uh, for a lot of people, they say, well, the president really doesn't have that much power to affect our daily lives. But I'll be I'll be honest, if you pay attention and I have over my lifetime, the attitude of the president of the United States can have a direct impact on everybody in the sense that, for example, when you have somebody who is a pro-business uh, type of president, it will actually invigorate small businesses throughout the country. When you have a president who is not a president who's pro-government and not pro-business, it will have an impact on businesses throughout the country. Now, he's not, dire he's not directly doing it in the sense of some legislation, but it's direct in the sense of a prevailing attitude. Well, here we see the same thing with King David. David's attitude is one where he's grieving and mourning. They just want a victory. They just want a victory in battle. But David is grieving and mourning over his son Absalom, and it's affecting all the people. It's affecting all the people. They're mourning with him. Joab believed that this was to the shame of those who had fought for David, right? This was to the shame of them. These people went out there and they fought in this battle, and this is to their shame because he's here he is. They won this battle for him, for him, for his children, for his wives and concubines, which that's another story. But for all these people, uh, they had fought and won this battle, and uh, he was totally disrespected. He was dissing them, to use modern terminology. He was dissing all these people. Joab gave David a sharp rebu rebuke, and David did respond. By him going out to the gate, that was David responding to the rebuke. He realized that he had made a mistake. Uh, and he needed to address the people. Some who supported Absalom were nervous about bringing David back as king uh, for obvious reasons. I think you'll see in verses, the rest of that verse is the ne next part here. Now Israel had fled each to his tent, right? That was the, 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 those who had been defeated, right? They had fled to their tents. And it says in verse 9, all the people were quarreling throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. But now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. However, Absalom, who, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now then, why are you silent about bringing the king back? Right. So there was there was quarreling going on right between the peoples, because some people were saying, I don't know, man, if we should bring him back as our king or not. And then others were saying, well, what, what are we doing? This guy's. 
He's the one who fought for us and he saved us from the Philistines. And then why are you silent now? So there was there was a there were disputes among the people because of all the things that had transpired. Then King David sent to Zadok and Abiathar, the priest, saying, speak to the elders of Judah, saying, why are you the last to bring the king back to his house? Since the word of all Israel has come to the king, even to his house, you are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? Say to Amasa, now remember who is Amasa? He's the one who went and fought for Absalom, right? Say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? May God do so to me and more also if you will not be the commander of the army before me continually in place of Joab. Thus, he turned the hearts of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king saying, return you all your, and all your servants. The, the king then returned and came as far as the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal in order to go meet the king to bring the king across the Jordan. If you remember when we looked at the maps, I didn't put the map back up here again. When we looked at the maps, he had gone from Jerusalem, had crossed over the Jordan and had gone up to Mahanaim, right, where he fought the battle up there uh, against Absalom. And so... Uh, we see the picture now he's coming back down that same kind of path coming back to Jerusalem and he's at the Jordan there getting ready to cross. Uh, so the Judah came down to meet him at that point. So first of all, David is reaching out to the people in grace. He started with the elders of Judah. So this is the point. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of disputes and quarrels going on. And he's re- he's graciously reaching out to the people saying, all right, uh, what is it? What is the hold up here? What do we need to do? What it, what needs to happen? And he's he's telling them, you know, don't even don't even be afraid. Don't be afraid. Uh, I'm not going to do anything. I'm show, I'm showing you that it's OK to uh, to to reinstate me if that's what you need to do. And then he even showed uh, Amasa forgiveness, offering him Joab's position. Well, there, by the way, is there not a little bit of a, an ulterior motive there? Joab has been kind of a thorn in David's side a little bit, right? So maybe he's offering Amasa his position, not only as a as an olive branch, right, handing out and showing him he's he's forgiving him for the fact that he went up against him, but also in terms of uh, the conflict he's had with Joab, he can get somebody else in there that maybe won't, there won't be as many problems. And of course, the people of Judah responded uh, to David and they asked him to return. They're going to go out and meet him there at the Jordan and bring him in uh, to Jerusalem. Shimei came along with the men from Judah to ask forgiveness. Remember the whole incident with Shimei? <laughs> if not, I'll remind you of that. Uh, Shimei comes out to ask forgiveness, uh, which we've got some references here from Second Kings 16. I mean, Second Samuel 16. Excuse me. Let's go ahead and take a look at that section, just as a reminder before we look at this one. Uh, in Second Samuel 16, when King David came to Bahurim, remember he's fleeing from the from the coup d'état. Uh, Absalom's coup d'etat. He's fleeing. He came to Bahurim. Behold, there came out from there a man of the family of House of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came out con- cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men who were at his right hand and his left. And Shimei said when he cursed, get out, get out, you man of bloodshed, you worthless fellow. Uh, the Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. So he didn't mince any words. And uh, now, however, he comes out with a little different tone here in Second Samuel 19. Then Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite who was from Bahurim, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him. This is an interesting thing. The Benjamites were there with uh, the folks, the tribe of Judah. Interestingly, when you get to the divided kingdom, you have a lot of uh, Benjamites living in the in the southern kingdom, right? We're, we're going to talk about that when we get to the divided kingdom. And a lot of the people from Benjamin lived in the southern kingdom. Uh, there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him with Ziba, the servant. We got Ziba in here too. Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul and his 15 sons and his 20 servants with him. And they rushed to the Jordan before the king. Then they kept crossing the ford to bring over the king's household and to do what was good in his sight. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. So he said to the king, let not my Lord consider me guilty, nor remember what your servant did wrong on the day when my Lord, the king, came out from Jerusalem 
so that the king would take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come today, the first of all the house of Joseph, to go down to meet my lord, the king. I love this, Abishai. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said, should not Shimei be put to death for this? Uh, that, was his, that was his thing. He wanted to kill Shimei for all of this, and, and rightfully so, by the way, uh, because he cursed the Lord's anointed. Uh, then David, David then said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Should any man be put to death in Israel today? For I do not know that I am king over Israel today. Right? He's saying, look, I, I, don't, I haven't even been restored to king yet. I don't even know if I'm the king. Uh, the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. Thus the king swore to him. All right, so that's what we see. So first of all, Shimei and a group of Benjamites came to meet David at the Jordan. Ziba is among them. We're going to see that that's important here in just a minute. Uh, Shimei bowed down and asked for forgiveness. I think this is legit. I think this is legitimate repentance, and uh, he's, he knows that he sinned. He's, he's asking for forgiveness from David. Uh, and again, we, we already looked at that section at what he did in terms of cursing him. Abishai, this is his M.O. He wanted to kill him. In 2 Samuel 16, we read this when we were doing that chapter. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. So Abishai wants blood, right? And so again, when we looked at that in 2 Samuel 16, uh, I remember I talked to all of you and said, and this, by the way, is actually what is taught in the law, that this guy, for what he's doing, actually should die. But David's showing him grace, right? David, David is showing him grace, uh, and so he grants him a, repri- a reprieve. Now, interestingly, what's interesting, he said, you shall not die, right? You shall not die. But if we fast forward to the end of David's life, in 1 Kings 2.8, he's talking to Solomon, and he says, Behold, there is with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite of Bahurim, now, it was he who cursed me with a violent curse on the day I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. So what David was actually telling Shimei is, I, am, I'm, not, I'm not going to kill you. But now he's telling Solomon, verse 9, Therefore, now therefore, do not let him go unpunished. For you are a wise man and you will know what you ought to do to him and you will bring his gray hair down to Sheol with blood. So he's telling his son, I did not I did not exact any kind of justice against this guy for what he did to me. I granted him forgiveness. But now that I'm dying and you're going to become the king, take care of it. Right. Because he was deserving. Abishai was right that he was deserving of death. But David had granted him forgiveness. He'd been gracious toward him and granted him forgiveness in his lifetime, as it turns out, (laughs) right? After he died, after he died, it was no longer the case. Now, we talk about Ziba. Remember Ziba and the whole thing with Mephibosheth and all of that that happened? Uh, Mephibosheth came down and defended himself before David. Uh, Ziba is there and Mephibosheth arrives and defends himself. Bring the points up there real quick. So then Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, he's actually the grandson, but that's just language in the Hebrew that someone's a descendant. Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had neither cared for his feet nor trimmed his mustache nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came home in peace. It was when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? So he answered, Oh, my Lord, the king, my servant deceived me. Now, who's my servant? Ziba. Yeah, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king because your servant is lame. Moreover, he has slandered your servant to my Lord, the king. But my Lord, the king is like an angel, like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your sight. For all my father's household was nothing but dead men before my Lord, the king. Yet. You set your servant among those who ate at your own table. Remember, Mephibosheth was invited to eat at David's table. That's a big deal. What right do I, do I have yet that I should complain any more to the king? So the king said to him, why do you still speak of your affairs? I have decided 
You and Ziba shall divide the land. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him even take it all since my lord the king has come safely to his own house. Now, so the idea of not taking care of his foot and not shaving and all the other things, that's, a, that's he's mourning. The fact that David had had to flee from Jerusalem, he's in mourning because uh, David had been very gracious to him. He loved David. And ever since David had left, he'd been in mourning. That's the, what, that's the description of that, that he hadn't shaved, shaved his done any shaving, he hadn't taken care of his foot, he hadn't done any of that. When asked about it, he told David that Ziba had been deceitful about him, right? That whole thing where Ziba talked to him and told him that Mephibosheth was actually trying... Remember, remember that incident? He was trying to actually uh, make the claim that Mephibosheth was back in Jerusalem trying to get the descendants of Saul back into power, right? David then made a decision. We'll read about that in a minute. David then made a decision to adjust his previous judgment, uh, but Mephibosheth was happy just knowing that David was safe. Back in 2 Samuel 16 again, first four verses. Now, when David had passed a little beyond the summit, behold, Ziba, this is, um, this is the summit of, where are they? He's fleeing and he's going over the mountain. Mount of Olives, right? He's going over the Mount of Olives. And when David had passed a little beyond the summit, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of saddled donkeys. And on them were 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, a jug of wine. The king said to Ziba, why do you have these? And Ziba said, uh, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, the wine for whoever is faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? He's talking about Mephibosheth. And Ziba said to the king, behold, he is staying in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. Right? That he's going to be the one who's going to take over. This is what Ziba said. So the king said to Ziba, behold, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I prostrate myself. Let me find favor in your sight, O my Lord. Okay. So now we have this little quandary. Ziba told David, that Mephibosheth was trying to seize the power back in Jerusalem. He was going to try to take the power back uh, to the family of Saul, and he was going to be the king. That's what, that's what Ziba told uh, David. So, so David said, okay, all of that that I had granted to Mephibosheth, it's yours now. Well, then Ziba, then, excuse me, then Mephibosheth shows up. Ziba is there. Remember we read that. Ziba is there. Mephibosheth shows up and he explains to David, no, no, I've been mourning this whole time and uh, I'm glad that you're back, but I, I, there was, I was not in the process of trying to usurp anything. I, I'm just glad you're back and you've been deceived. Ziba told you lies. He deceived you as to why I didn't come. He deceived you, he deceived you as to what I was doing by staying back. Uh, all of that was deceitful. I ask you the question, who's telling the truth? We don't know. We don't. If you look at both accounts, David believed both of them. Now, in the end, if you notice what he did is he granted them that they would divide it up, right? That Mephibosheth would get half and Ziba would get half. And I think David is saying that because he's actually in the same boat we are. Who's telling the truth? Was Mephibosheth staying back to try to take power or was he in mourning for David? And he really, uh, really was it was it was all a big lie that Ziba told David and David says, okay, I don't know who's telling the truth. Now, he didn't, it doesn't say that in this passage, but I believe his judgment was that you guys will divide it up because he's like, I don't know who's telling the truth here, but I'll give you each half of what was promised to Mephibosheth and, uh, and then leave it at that. And then, but Mephibosheth, I must say, if I have to pick, if I have to pick, I would say perhaps uh, Mephibosheth is telling the truth because he was of the attitude, you know what, I don't care about that. I'm just glad you're home. I'm just glad you're back and you're safe. You know, so he wasn't really concerned about the possessions part of it. He just wanted to be able to be there at the king's table. He wanted to be there with David. So if, I, if, you, if you put a gun to my head and made me choose one or the other, I would say, well, I think Mephibosheth was probably the one telling the truth. But we don't really know because the scripture doesn't tell us. Remember, both of these are accounts are not uh, a narrative where it tells us what really happened. Both of these accounts are 
the people saying what they're saying. And so we don't have evidence of who's really telling the truth. But he defended himself before David, and David ended up giving half, half of the land to him and half to Ziba. Now David wanted to bless Barzillai. Remember Barzillai? Uh, but he ended up blessing his son Chimham instead. Uh, this is in uh, verses 31 through 40. We'll take a look at that. Now, Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogalim, and he went to the Jordan. He went on to the Jordan with the king to escort him over the Jordan. He's got, a lot of people are coming down to meet David here. Um, now, Barzillai was very old, being 80 years old. And he had sustained the king while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very great man. Remember that? We're going to look at that. We're going to look at the scriptures that talk about that. The king said to Barzillai, you cross over with me and I will sustain you in Jerusalem with me. What he's saying is, I'm going to take care of you. The idea of sustaining, when, when David says that, he doesn't mean I'm going to give you the bare minimum to survive. <laughs> he means I'm going to take care of you. You come over with me back to Jerusalem and I'm going to take care of you. But Barzillai said to the king, how long have I yet to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am now 80 years old. And I love this part. I love this. Can I distinguish between good and bad? Or can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? In other words, he's talking about himself. Can I even taste anymore? I mean, my dad lost his sense of taste before he passed away and went to, to be with Jesus. Um, can I hear anymore the voice of, a, of singing men and women? I can relate to that. My wife and I, by the way, we were talking about this the other day. We are going to be that couple. It's going to be, eh, what'd you say? Eh, we are already there. Half the time we talk to one another, the other person goes, I'm, what did you say? I mean, that, we're already there, folks. Can I hear the voice of singing men and women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my Lord, the King, he says, look, I'm going to be nothing but a burden, right? If you take me with you, I'm just going to be a burden. I'm not going to be able to help you. I'm not going to be able to do anything for you. So I'm just going to be, I'm just going to be a drag on you. That's all I'm going to be. Your servant would merely cross over the Jordan with the King. Why should the King compensate, compensate me in this reward? And that shows you that when he gave, when we go back and look at the passage, that talks about what he did for King David. He wasn't doing that, expecting something in return. He was doing it out of the love in his heart. He was doing that to provide for King David. He was not expecting something in return. Why should the king compensate me in this reward? Verse 17, please let your servant return that I may, I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. However, here is your servant, Shimham. Now, that's his son. Let him cross over with my lord, the king, and do for him what is good in your sight. And... The king answered, I want to make sure I was reading in the right place, I am. The king answered, Shimham shall cross over with me, and I will do for him what is good in your sight. You notice what he says? Look what he says. So, Barzillai says, and do for him what is good in your sight. He's talking to King David. King David then says, he answers, Shimham shall cross over with me, and I will do for him what is good in your sight. He's saying to Barzillai, you Give me counsel as to what I should do. You give me counsel. And whatever you require of me, I will do for you. See, he wants to honor Barzillai in all of this. And he's, he's okay with Chimham coming with him, but he wants to. It's actually Chimham, by the way, if I said it the right way. That's the C-H in the Hebrew. But if he wants to do what's right by Barzillai, so he's going to honor Barzillai with however he treats Chimham. All right? So... It says, all the people crossed over the Jordan, and the king crossed too. The king then kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his place. Now the king went on to Gilgal, and Shimham Shim Shim went on with him, and all the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel accompanied the king. So that's what we have here. So breaking it down, Barzillai had provided for David when he was fleeing Absalom. Here in 2 Samuel 17, we saw that in verses 27 through 29. Now when David had come to Mahanaim, uh, Shobi, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah, the son of the sons of Ammon, Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, pottery, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, parched seeds, honey, curds, sheep, and cheese of the herd for David and for the people who were with him to eat, for they said the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. So these, 
These provisions that are made for them on this journey are quite important, actually. Let me back up. Uh, so he, of course, he offers to provide for Barzillai, but then he says, look, take care of my son instead. Take care of my son instead. And he honored those wishes and did whatever it was that he wanted. This is, this is important type of thing that, that we read. This, this is narrative that's given to us in the scripture, not just to help us understand about certain individuals and, and what, what is going on in terms of the, the movement of the king back to Jerusalem. And other. This is to help us understand people's character, right? I mean, we get a picture of Barzillai and the kind of person that he is through what he, not only what he did that we just saw in chapter 17, but what he's doing now in terms of David wanting to honor him and he's saying, look, I'm old, I'm getting ready to die anyway. I mean, I can't really do anything that's for you. And so he wants to see uh, his son go with David. And so it shows you something about Barzillai's character, but you see David's character as well, don't you, in this, how he wants to honor Barzillai and he's willing to do whatever Barzillai wants in terms of taking care of his son, Chimham. So uh, very important, these, these little dialogues, these little things that we have in these chapters is not just trivial stuff. It's insight into the character of these people. And so we're getting a picture of David's character and his, uh, his graciousness uh, with regard to how he deals with individuals. The remaining tribes of Israel were jealous that Judah and Benjamin had brought David over the Jordan uh, it, it doesn't matter. I, I think this is just common to man uh, that whenever anything happens, there's always going to be somebody who gets jealous. I think it's just common to man. And behold, all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, why had our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household and all David's men with him over the Jordan? Then all the men of, the Ju- of Judah answered the men of Israel because the king is a close relative to us. That's interesting statement, right? He's one of us. Uh, Why then are you angry about this matter? Have we eaten at all the king's expense or has anything been taken for us? But the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, we have 10 parts in the king. Therefore, we also have more claim on David than you. (laughs) I don't know why. For some reason, I'm, I'm for some reason, I'm thinking about junior high school here. Uh, does this not sound like a discussion in junior high? Look, well, we have 10 parts in the king. We have more claim on him than you do. Why then did you treat us with contempt? Was it not our advice first to bring back our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were harsher than the words of the men of Israel. Now, the language of harsher there is, is, is really stronger language, right? They were, they were, they used strong language. They were very, they were very adamant about what they were saying, right? So the men of Judah, basically when this came up, the men of Judah answered the other tribes by pointing out the fact that David was of their tribe. David was of the tribe of Judah. Uh, and that, that was their point. Look, he's, he's one of us. He's one of the tribe of Judah. So, you know, by, besides remember, they didn't even say this, but remember who were the first ones to recognize David as the anointed? It was the men from Judah, the elders of Judah, wasn't it? Remember before he was even accepted by all the tribes of Israel, it was the elders of Judah who went up and anointed him. He'd already been anointed by God. They went up and anointed him and said, you are our king. So uh, there's a relationship there, but he's of the tribe of Judah. And they said, what do you mean? Why are you complaining? He's of our tribe. And what's interesting about this is the contention among the tribes, I believe, is a foreshadowing of what's going to come the divided kingdom, because you have Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdom, that's going to be the southern kingdom, and you got the other ten tribes, that's going to be the northern kingdom, and right here we already see the contention, don't we? And it doesn't come to fruition until after Solomon, but the seeds are already here. The seeds of discontent, the seeds of the contention are already present right here, and we're seeing evidence of it in this dispute, if you will. And what is the deal? What is the deal? I mean, they're saying, look, wait a minute. I mean, if you think about it again, I go back to the pettiness of junior high school. Uh, shouldn't the men of Israel, shouldn't the ones of the other 10 tribes come and said, Judah, Benjamin, thank you so much for helping to bring David across the Jordan and back to Jerusalem because now he can serve as king over us. 
right? Maybe was, maybe was there a little bit of feeling guilty about the fact that maybe they'd anointed Absalom as king over them? And you see what I'm saying? There's lots of issues at play here. And, uh, but that contention, that strife that's within the tribes of Israel is uh, definitely evident already here, and it's going to become even worse as you get down the road when we get to beyond Solomon. Anyway, just wanted to point that out. All right, a little turn to our scripture of the week. Our scripture of the week, and this is a good one. I have a lot to say about this one. Let's go ahead and all read this together. Those of you at home, if you want to read along as well, get your New American Standard Bible if you have one. Or if you're looking, actually, if you're looking at the screencast uh, post facto, uh, you can actually read it on the screen there as we go along. But let's all read this together. Let me get the cursor out of the way there. Verses 7 and 8 of James chapter 4. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. All right, submit therefore to God. What have we just had in this section in James God gives greater grace, therefore it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's talking about humility, submitting to God. By the way, you cannot, you cannot try to claim the second half of verse 7 unless you apply the first half of verse 7. A lot of believers, I will say this, a lot of believers today have been taught this idea of resisting the devil and they're doing so in a position of arrogance. What I mean by that is they think I am going to resist the devil and he's going to flee from me. Well, it's in the context of submitting to God. Who's going to really cause the devil to flee? It's God, isn't it? Yeah, we can't do it. Come on. You've got to submit But what I want you to notice here is that attitude of humility, submitting to God, yielding, submitting. It's a very powerful thing. You submit to God and then in his strength and the strength the Holy Spirit provides in his strength, we are able to then resist the devil. Remember, if I am going to draw the picture of it. If this axis here is in terms of power, intelligence, strength, dot, dot, dot. Way up here in the, in the stratosphere beyond anything and everything we can possibly imagine is God himself, right? And we're down here somewhere. And guess what? In between those two are the angels. Even in their fallen estate. So Satan, even though he is a fallen angel, he is superior to you in terms of intelligence, although it's corrupted. He is superior to you in terms of strength. He's superior to you in terms of power. The point being that on your own, You're going to be overpowered by the fallen angels. You're going to lose. But if God is the one who is at work in you, then you have a power greater than any power that any angel could possibly have. That seems like a simple concept, but I'm telling you right now, every single day, born-again believers try to battle against the fallen angels forces the fallen spiritual forces the forces of darkness and they try to do it in their own power the power of the flesh and they're going to lose you're going to lose you may not lose right away but you're going to lose you're not going to win that battle but greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world right so if you rely upon the strength which god has and his 
abilities, his intelligence, his strength, then you're going to win. It's a very simple concept, but we have to do it. We have to do it. And I'm telling you, there's believers who have been taught that they can go out and conquer Satan, and, they, and they've taken that idea. It's, a, it's an absolutely true thing from Scripture. But they've taken that idea, and they believe that they're going to do it on their own. And you can't do it. You're going to lose. You're going to get defeated. So submit to God and then resist the devil and he will flee from you. But what I want you to notice is the contrast here between verse 7 and verse 8. We're supposed to resist the devil, right? Talk to the hand, right? Resist the devil. But what are we supposed to do with God? The opposite. The idea of drawing near to God is, is coming in close. Almost the idea, the picture we have of the beloved disciple laying in the bosom of Christ himself, right? That picture of drawing near right into the very, the very bosom of God, right? The, the, the very loving hands of God drawing near. So with regard to Satan, we resist. We want, we want social distancing when it comes to Satan, don't we? <laughs> I don't even, where did that term even come from? I'd never even heard it before this whole thing. Um, but we're supposed to, we're supposed to, to create distance, that's the language of this. We're supposed to create distance between ourselves and Satan, but not with God. We're supposed to draw near right into the very presence of God. Now, we're in the presence of God, but think about this language of drawing near to God. Going right into, into the bosom of God, into his loving hands, his loving embrace. He will draw near to you. Is that where we are as believers? Are we trying to draw near to God? Are we wanting to be right there in the very embrace of God? Is that where we want to be? Hopefully we do. But see, when you're, when you're caught off in the things of carnality, when you're caught up in the things of the world and you're at enmity with God, his presence is kind of scary. We don't really want to be in his presence because being in his presence is going to expose where we're not doing the right things. But as believers, we should want to draw near to God. And he will definitely draw near to us. He is with us all the time. He's always with us. But this language of him drawing near to us speaks of intimacy. Intimacy. That is what we should want as believers is to have an intimate, close relationship with God. And part of it is this hard attitude at the beginning of verse 8, drawing near to God. We want to be close with him. We want to be right there with him. Now, the last part of verse 8, cleanse your hands, O sinners. Now, that's, there's a lot that can be taught out of that. I've taught the book of James multiple times, but cleanse your hands, O sinners. At a very minimum, that's First uh, John 1, 9, isn't it? Confessing our sins and being restored. So at a very minimum, we have to do that. But in terms of the language of our hands, it also means that we've, we're cleaning up our, our, uh, our, our uh, actions, Right, not just being restored to fellowship, but we're also uh, cleaning up our actions. So if we're if we're sinners, and by the way, James is talking to believers here. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers. Um, we need to clean our hands when we get caught up in sin. We need to clean our hands. We need to be restored. We need to start walking the walk again. But then the last part of this, purify your hearts. I want you to think about this for a second. Look what he says. He says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Well, what that means is, are we truly worshiping God with a pure heart? In other words, are you 100% devoted to God? Or do you have divided devotion? Are you devoted to God? Doesn't, the double-minded doesn't mean that you're not you don't have part of you that's devoted to God. It means you're partly devoted to God, but you're partly devoted to other things. You're double-minded. You've, you're walking the fence. There's a lot of people that do that, by the way. A lot of people that walk the fence because they want to be they want to be on God's good side, right? So they come into church on Sunday morning, they make their nod to God, they want to make sure everything's okay with God and then he, they're on his good side. They don't want to be on God's bad side, but the rest of the time they're on the other side of the fence. They're walking in the ways of the world according to the the uh the wisdom of the world and so they're going to play it both ways because they don't want to be all in with god they don't want to be all in with the world either they want to kind of walk the fence and that's what this double-minded is all about so when it comes to purifying our hearts 
It means that we have a complete and total devotion to God. We're, we're all in for God. We're, we're not splitting our allegiances. We're totally fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now, there's a purification aspect that comes from that. And interestingly, he's telling them to purify their hearts. Now, when I taught the book of James, I pointed out that we can't actually we can't actually bring about the purification process in terms of all the things that the word of God does to clean out the the scar tissue and all the, the wrongful thinking that we have in our in our minds and all of that. The process of all of that is done by God. So why is this not in the passive sense? Why doesn't it say, let your hearts be purified? Well, the reason is because what James is addressing here is the idea of that devotion, that 100% devotion. He's talking about not allowing yourself to be divided in a double-minded mindset, that you're totally and completely devoted to the Lord. And so that's why he's talking about purifying. We can, we can make volitional choices to live our lives for the Lord, right? We can do that. We can make a choice that we're going to live our lives for the Lord. And we can be completely devoted to him in every way. And we can, we can decide that we're going to walk the manner worthy, the manner uh, worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Uh, so this is all the things that we can do. Now, the, again, the full purification of our hearts, God has to do it. But it's going to happen as we are totally and completely devoted to the Lord. So you put the whole package here together, the whole idea here, what do we have? I mean, we're talking right from the very beginning about humility, submitting ourselves to God. In the process of doing that, we are now putting ourselves in a position where we're relying upon his strength and his power and his abilities, not our own. In that context, we can resist the devil and he will, in fact, flee from us. And we may find ourselves in situations where that's front and center, I don't know if you ever have, but you might find yourself in a situation where you've encountered someone who is satanic and you are going to have to literally resist the satanic person who's standing right in front of you. You may find it that way, but in general, aren't you resisting the devil and all of, all of his lies and all of his plans and his programs and all the things that he's doing and resisting the devil? You're resisting everything about him, Right. And he will flee from you. And then we're and then in that same context of humility, we draw near to God. And he and I love that the idea he will draw near to us as a promise. He will. He will do that. That's a promise in Scripture is that as we're drawing near to him, he will draw near to us. And then in that same context of humility and drawing near to God, we're cleansing our hands and we're purifying our hearts. We're making sure that we're walking in fellowship with God, cleaning our hands we're making sure that our actions are in accordance with his holiness and we're purifying our hearts in terms of complete and utter devotion to God. And that is the, that is an important thing. What, what is going on in the church today? Much of what we see going on in the church today is we're seeing that individuals are not following after these two verses right here. We see believers that are walking and they're not even remotely focused on submission to God. And really, if you look at a lot of churches today, it's all about a message which I'm going to give you a message that's going to empower you. Well, the message is really about personal empowerment and it's not about looking to the power of God. Do you see the difference? I do want you to be empowered, but I want you to be empowered by God. I don't want you to somehow think that you yourself have power. I mean, my goodness, we're getting off into uh, uh, what's what was it, Dianetics or whatever it is. The whole idea that you know, you if you if you look to the power within, you can be you know all this kind of. No, I'm telling you right now, your power is your power is down here. Your power is way down here. You need to look to the power of God. Far too many churches are all about you know making people feel good about themselves, making people feel like that they are. You know, the, the, the old army slogan, be all that you can be, right? That's what, that's what a lot of churches are preaching. So they're not teaching submission. That, in fact, submission is, a, submission is a bad word these days, isn't it? I mean, if you think about it, people don't want to teach submission because it sounds bad. I'm going to submit myself to somebody else. Are you kidding me? That's the kind of attitude we have. This is a formula right here for a walk for a believer 
that's going to be blessed, a walk for a believer that's going to where they're going to flourish, where they're going to grow in the faith, where they're going to see the maximum amount of God's work in their lives is when they follow this formula. Do you all see that? And look at what he says here in verse nine, by the way. And I'm going to go ahead and read in verses nine and ten. In verse nine, he says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. What he's saying is he's addressing exactly what I was just talking about. These people have been walking the wrong way and they're loving it. They're laughing and having a good old time. And he's saying, look, you guys, you guys, the way you're walking, you need to be mourning right now. You need to be crying. You need to be you need to be weeping, folks. Because you have been walking the wrong way. Now, he doesn't, he's not saying he doesn't want believers to have joy. What did he say at the very beginning of this letter? Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. What he's saying is he doesn't want carnal believers to sit there and laugh and think they're having a great old time. He wants them to mourn and weep because of the way they've been turned against God. And then in verse 10, he says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, which, by the way, I take right back to verse 8, drawing near to God. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. In other words, you've been exalting yourselves. A lot of churches we have today are all about exalting people, right? You guys have been exalting yourselves. You need to humble yourselves and let God be the one who does the exalting. And that's an important message. This little piece uh, of this letter in James is so powerful and so important for believers to understand. We need to be humble. We need, to, we need to lay down and prostrate ourselves before God and ask for God to be the strength in our lives, for God to be the wisdom in our lives, for God to be the all in all in our lives and not be double-minded and partly devoted to God and partly not. Does that make sense? I, you know, I love using that language of the Texas Hold'em. You've got to be all in, right? Take all your chips, shove them in. You're all in for God, right? That's what you need to be. Yes, sir. I guarantee you there's a lot of churches that don't want to teach verse 9. No, no, no. I don't. Yeah, yeah, why would I say that? I, don't, I want you all to walk out of here happy and just everything's good in your life. I want you to feel good about yourself. Yeah, verse 9 is a verse that's not a popular verse, is it? But it's one that needs to be taught. Absolutely needs to be taught because when we are in the business of self-promotion and self-exaltation, we need to come to this place where we're miserable and we mourn and we weep because it's then that God can work with us, isn't it? It's when we get to that place that God can actually make it, make it happen in our lives. And, and that's what we need, folks. That's what we need is humility and, and submission. All right. Uh, I know we're finishing a little bit early, but let's go ahead and, and close in prayer. Most gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the lessons we can learn. We thank you for these insights we have into the character of David and the character of Barzillai and the others in these narratives. It's, we, can, we can get a picture of people's souls and their humility and the graciousness that's being shown and the different things that are present. But we thank you that we can look at these verses that were written so long ago uh, for our benefit and we can still benefit from them today father we also thank you for the reminder at the beginning of class about how our growth is slow and steady here a little there a little and it's not going to be explosive all the time we're going to have those times where we grow tremendously in our own spiritual walk but uh, it's a, in general our growth is is a slow and steady growth and we should embrace that and be thankful for it and we should be thankful for those moments that we do have where a lesson is finally fully understood or, or maybe uh, finally a concept from your word becomes clear in our thinking. We, we are thankful for those moments, but we're thankful for every little bit you do to teach us and to help us to be molded into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, in this last little bit, when we looked at the scripture of the week, we're thankful for the reminder that it all requires humility. We have to truly humble ourselves before you submit to you we have to allow you to be our wisdom and our strength we have to turn to you for every ounce of of uh, wisdom every ounce of strength that is required for whatever it is you ask us to do if we try to do these things on our own we will not succeed 
Father, we need to be respectful for the amount of capability that the adversary has and realize that if we resist him in our own strength, we're going to get we're going to get crushed. We need to resist him in your strength. We need to look at him and understand that he is craftier than we are. He is a sneaky, deceitful guy. And we need to respect that in terms of knowing that he can absolutely twist us into a knot if we try to go up against him in our own strength. So, Father, thank you for this reminder. Thank you for the the lessons that we can learn from from James, from Isaiah, from 2 Samuel, all of these different places in the Bible. We can learn these amazing lessons, and we thank you for these things. In Jesus Christ, most precious and holy name we pray. Amen.